Faith, family, freedom, hope, and opportunity. You're listening to Freedom Rings. I'm your host, Senator Marsha Blackburn. Hi there, and welcome back for another podcast with Freedom Rings. I'm Senator Marsha Blackburn, and I am absolutely thrilled that you all are listening. And today, what an amazing woman we have as our guest. We have the South Dakota Governor, Christy Noem, who is doing an unbelievable job. You've probably watched her as she has steered and guided her state through this COVID crisis. And I had the opportunity to get to know the governor when she served in the U.S. House of Representatives. So, Governor, welcome. We're delighted you're here. Oh, thank you so much, Marcia. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, it is good to hear from you and what a great story you have to tell and how I how much I enjoyed serving with you in the House. Uh, it was always such a pleasure to be in uh whip team meetings with you and uh, Bible study and to hear some of your wisdom imparted to our conference as we moved forward on navigating some pretty thorny issues. But one of the things I always appreciated was you would reference growing up in South Dakota and growing up on a ranch and uh, you would talk about how your parents really ascribed to the wisdom of the Bible and John Wayne. And you would use <laughs> that, that. So <laughs> you would use that to motivate some of our conference members. How did that come about for you? Oh, well, you know, I I have always been a pretty open book. And I think that a lot of our experiences in life help us develop into the people that we are. And and you know what I am and what I do every day probably reflects um, my childhood and years of my parents' influence in my life. And, and uh, those stories, I think, are what helps people relate to us and tells us why we get up every day and do the work that we do. And in fact, Marcia, that's one of the reasons that you were so influential in my life is because um, you, I came into the house, I was a farmer and a rancher, and uh, first time I went to D.C. was when I was actually campaigning to be in Congress and got the chance to meet a strong leader like you. And uh, when when Marsha talked, everybody was quiet and listened because we knew we were either going to learn something new uh, or we were going to have something we could take with us and use to educate uh, with folks all over the country. So you were a dear friend of mine and I'm just so glad um, that you're still there fighting for us every day in the U.S. Senate. But, you know, my background growing up, uh, you know, it was more important in my family what you did rather than what you said. Kind of the, uh, you know, it was uh, we worked hard every day. I had a dad who woke us up every morning by yelling upstairs, get up. More people die in bed than anywhere else. And, uh, you know, got us outside and everything we did together as a family. We loved the Lord and and uh, were in church every time the doors were open. And uh, but my dad was also a cowboy, so that meant we spent a lot of time watching John Wayne as well. And and uh, I learned quickly that words matter, 
and that people that uh, if you can get them to pay attention to your words, they also then are going to follow and see if you backed it up with action. And so um, my whole life was in uh, working, uh, starting businesses, running businesses, making decisions. And uh, I also was raised with the belief that uh, you don't complain about things, you fix them. So I think that's probably how I ended up in Congress. My dad passed away in an accident at the age of 49. I took over our businesses at the age of 21 got hit with death taxes, estate taxes, and it made me angry that we had unfair taxes in this country and decided to not complain about it, but to try to be someone who went forward and worked to fix it. And that issue of dealing with equity is something that you brought to to the U.S. House and treating people fairly, treating people with respect and trusting people to make their own decisions. It's very true. You know, when, specifically when it came to tax reform, that's what I was passionate about. I We took over our farming and ranching business, but we, we had a lot of land. We had a lot of people working for us. I'd also run a restaurant. I had started and operated for many years, a hunting lodge, um, recognized our tax code, how it constantly picks winners and losers, um, and and how shocking it was for me to have a tragedy happen to our family and immediately find out that we owed taxes to the federal government because of this tragedy and um, and how unfair it was. It was the only time in our tax code we double tax someone on the same income. So, uh, you know, it really is a fairness issue and but also was raised with South Dakota values of personal responsibility. And I think it's those foundations and truths that still drive me every day. And it's the viewpoint that I look through on every policy decision that I'm working to implement as governor today. Well, and going through the COVID crisis, you never closed your state. You trusted your citizens to take that personal responsibility. And they were really kind of happy with that. I mean, throwing a parade, (laughs) That was a pretty yeah. good, uh, pretty good step. So, talk a little bit about how you move through that process of choosing to trust them to exercise that personal responsibility. Well, I have always approached each day that uh, to be teachable, that I would take in all the information that I possibly could, and then make a decision based on on the facts and the science and the data that I had, Um, you know, there was some words of wisdom I was given some time ago that it was, do you want to be somebody who does something that feels good? Or do you want to be somebody who, who does good? And I had decided I wanted to be someone who, who does good, not just something that feels good. And as we started to face, um, COVID-19 and it spread across our state. Our first positive case came on March 10th. And I had been working with our Department of Health for months already at that time to prepare and our state epidemiologist. And then I'd gotten our three healthcare systems together and brought them around a a table and on conference calls for weeks, uh, planning, getting information, learning, and being teachable as much as I possibly could. Uh, but then also deciding that our response to this virus had to make sense and actually do good for people. And I also recognized that what my authority is, 
as a governor and talked about the the Constitution and the oath that I took when I was sworn in our state constitution, our our U.S. Constitution that I swore to uphold and recognized that I was always going to honor that no matter what decision that I made. And, you know, I, I was in D.C. for eight years and I worked very hard in the campaign so I could come home and be in South Dakota full time because I love this state and the people that are here. And I just trusted them. I trusted them that if I gave them the facts on this virus and what we knew about it, that they would make the right decision to protect their families and our communities. And and so that was a real honest conversation that I had with South Dakota. I I, I said, this is what I know. This is what our projections are. This is what the science we know of this virus today. And I am not going to close your businesses. I'm not going to mandate you stay at home. I'm going to trust you to, to not have large groups and to socially distance, to practice good hygiene and protect those vulnerable populations. And with, with uh, those actions that you will personally decide to do for your family, I believe we can slow down the spread and keep our healthcare systems functioning in a way that they can best care for individuals. And overwhelmingly, people did that. Uh, we bent our curve and our peak by over 75%. And uh, even at that point, now we're only at 10% of our hospital capacity that we have to take care of individuals who have COVID-19. So the people of South Dakota immediately responded, made the right decision, and we all have benefited from that. What a great story, and what a great story uh, to tell for your state. And your citizens, obviously, are so pleased with how they performed because uh, we all saw the video of the parade that circled the, was it the Capitol or the residence? it was actually at the residence. It was um, at night and um, or in the later afternoon. And I have been I have an office here at the residence as well that um, I worked out of and worked back and forth on based on you know what we were doing. But um, yeah, I was inside and my daughter came in and said, "There's somebody at the door who wants to see you." And but I heard sirens and fire trucks, and I thought, you know, there was something horrible going on outside and and here it was um hundreds of cars and vehicles and horses and fire trucks and cop cars and people and it was just you know pure our capital city is only about 10,000 people so there's not that many people that live here and it's a good it's a good distance so it was just the community of pure that came out because you know that's where it was at and it was kind of impromptu but it was completely overwhelming for me because I think what we do in these jobs is a lot of times, um, you know, you you make tough decisions every day. And that was the thing that weighed heavy on my heart throughout this whole thing is I knew every single decision I made was going to impact life, that it was going to impact how sick people got if they got sick and it could end up costing people their lives. So that was a weight that every decision um, um, you know, was was weighing on me, and to see the people respond um, was completely overwhelming. It'd been a tough day that day, which is a lot of times I think we as leaders don't talk about that we have tough days too. And then to have something like that, that is happen so true. Was, 
Well, was, I was thought that was special. wonderful. And I have to tell you, when I was looking at the video, I thought, is that Kennedy? Is that Booker? Yeah, I thought, my goodness, uh, kids do grow up. Yeah, they all grew up. Booker is 6'5 now. In fact, uh, wow. the day we're recording this, he's turning 18 years old. So when oh I got to goodness. D.C., when wow. I got to D.C., I think he was seven, just about to turn eight. So, yeah, he, he grew up. Yeah, well, that is that is wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about your political journey. What was your first race and how did that come about for you? You know, the first race I ever ran was um, for the state legislature, and I ran in a primary. And at that time, I had been um, working in business for quite a few years. It was in 2006, and there was already two people in the primary. And um, I had people asking me if I would consider it. They wanted a business person. They wanted someone who um, was willing to go there and champion common sense reforms. We needed our property tax system reformed at that time. South Dakota doesn't have an income tax. We don't have a corporate income tax. We don't have a personal property tax. All we really use to fund state government is sales taxes. Yes. And then it's all like the Tennessee. local schools. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The local schools and counties are funded by property taxes. And me, me being a business person um, was passionate about that type of reform too. So I just decided to run and won the primary and then won in the fall for my district, which represented five counties. And then, uh, so I served two terms in the legislature. My second term, I got elected as the assistant majority leader in the house. And, uh, and then as I was in the legislature that last uh, couple of years, people kept encouraging me to run for Congress. We had a blue dog Democrat, a, a woman, that had represented South Dakota in the U.S. House for several years. And uh, I think the belief was in South Dakota that they needed um, someone strong um, that was conservative and also a woman uh, was what they had hoped to get to, to run against her. So it wasn't something that at the time my husband and I wanted to do at all. In fact, we said no for a couple of years to folks who kept trying to recruit us. Um, but finally, at one point, it got to where... Um, I had this one morning, I got three different phone calls from across the country asking me to consider to run. And I said to my husband, I called him up and I said, here's the deal. I just feel like if we don't run, we could be disobedient to what God wants us to do. So if we run and we lose, then everything will be fine. <laughs> if, we, <laughs> if we win, then we'll have to figure it out how we're going to raise our kids and how we're going to, what we're going to do with these businesses. And and so we decided to run knowing that it, she was very popular and knowing it'd be very, very difficult to ever win um, and got into a primary that had was a two people had already been running for over a year. And I got in just two months before the primary and uh, ran hard and won and then won again that fall. It was one of the top five house races in the nation in 2010. So I guess for me, Marsha, I mean, you've probably heard me say that and share this before, but I, I think people need to say yes to opportunities. Um, there may be things that come your way that people ask you to do. And in this day and age, so many times we all say no, if it's going to be an inconvenience or no, if we don't think it's something we're good at. And I just encourage everybody just to say yes and try it and do it because you never know if you might have a gift or a skill that you didn't know that you had, or you might 
not know for sure, um, you know, what, what you should be doing and what your purpose is, unless you are willing to step out on a limb and try something new once in a while. Well, that is so true. And many times for women, uh, what I find, and I think you probably do too, is that they don't raise their hand and volunteer. The opportunity seeks them out. And it is almost as if that door is cracked open a little bit, and they have to recognize that that is an opportunity and an opening, and they should step forward and take it. So I always appreciate, I always appreciate when people do do that. And as you mentioned earlier, tax reform and fiscal policy is something that drove you, and making certain that things were done fairly is something that really has been a stamp on all of your work, your legislative and your leadership work. I think another thing that that just ties into when you talk about how tax policy can limit opportunity and limit freedom, your examples are really a very good example of that because what your father had built for your mom and your family was something that government was going to exercise its opportunity to take away. And yeah, that that estate tax bill that hit us at that time, you know, we were farmers and ranchers. So um, they assessed it was 55% at that time, my dad passed away. And we obviously had land and cattle and machinery, but we didn't have any money in the bank. And so um, when I got that bill in the mail from the IRS on what we owed um, and we didn't have any money, um, I, I was so angry. I just remember thinking, how can something that absolutely devastated our family, like losing my dad, um, now take away our family business and everything that we have? Because the only way we could pay it would be to sell you know, land that had been in our family for generations. So, um, so we, and I ended up finding a banker. Uh, it took me a long time, but finding people that would loan us money and took out loans, it, it took us 10 years to pay off those loans. And we started more businesses in order to pay that. We had to scrape and fight. And, uh, but it really is that experience that taught me a lot about business and about the unfairness of the tax code and the need for people who really understand how it picks winners and losers and how unfair it can be at times. Um, if we had had just a, if we had had a gas station as our family business, the only way we could have um, taken care of that situation would be to sell the family business. I'm grateful we had a farm where we could mortgage land and and do that. But if we'd had a different kind of a, a business, the only way we could have paid it would have been to sell the business. And that well, would have been a terrible thing as well. Right. And sometimes as we talk about public policy, you know, Christy, I think that it's so important to realize if we if we give away some of our freedom to government and government then is making a law or executing rules over that action, then if they decide to take it away, they can take it away. And it's why preserving freedom is so vitally important. And when we hear people talk about the Green New Deal or talk about nationalized health care or federalized elections, people do not realize that you're then 
ceding that right to the government, and the government then is taking that authority to exercise over you how that is going to be conducted. So we want to always um, talk in terms of preserving those freedoms and those rights and opportunities. Um, well, and I, I found that to be incredibly important during this um, COVID-19 virus that hit our country is um, look at what government has done in some of these states and look what it has taken away from people. It has absolutely wiped them out financially, taken their businesses from them, taken their opportunities. And it was by decisions that were made by those in government, I've, I found, because I've done almost daily press conferences now for months, uh, that I needed to use that opportunity to teach people about the foundations of this country, why America is special, and, and how those freedoms and liberties still to this day, every day, and the decisions that we make need to be fought for, and that I, as a leader, um, was not going to be one who, in a time of crisis, overstepped my authority and took from people uh, because of emotions or panic or fear that I was going to. But I couldn't just do that and decide that, that I needed to explain all of that and that that these are perilous times when we don't think about how we could lose our country just by decisions that are being made and by those in authority. Um, during a crisis. Well, and your example of allowing people to live freely and make their decisions freely on how they have approached that pandemic has just been a wonderful example for our country and for individuals to see strong, disciplined, thoughtful leadership that was allowing freedom to be exercised in the face of adversity. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. And for all of you listening, uh, stay with us at Freedom Rings. Thank you for listening to this episode of Freedom Rings. You can follow me on Twitter at Vote Marsha, Facebook at Marsha Blackburn for Senate and on Instagram at Team Marsha. And you can always find us online at MarshaBlackburn.com. The Freedom Rings podcast is edited and produced by Jared Cummings. Executive producers are Conservative Partnership Center and Marsha Blackburn. Together, we make Freedom Rings.